Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me on the show today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Chris Dillow. And we're also delighted to welcome a special guest, Julian Chester, partner and private client broker at Killick & Co. Today we're going to be talking about starting out in investing, alternatives to traditional bond funds and the launch of Woodford Patient Capital. Now, this week's Portfolio Clinic in Investors Chronicle magazine features a 23-year-old and he's been investing for six months. He's put together a portfolio of seven stocks and these are mainly larger FTSE 100 companies such as BP, Royal Dutch Shell and GlaxoSmithKline. And his aim is to secure a secondary income through, through investing. And we thought it was great that he showed a passion for investing and he was very keen, he was starting out but also that young, young investors can be overconfident about their abilities. And one of the most interesting things about what this investor said was that after just six months in the markets, he thinks he has a talent for equity research. Now, Chris, do, can, can this be possible? Can he have a talent already? What do you think? It's theoretically possible, but I very much doubt it. Um, let me put it this way. There are very, very few people who have the ability to outperform the market over the long run on average. But there are very, very many people who are overconfident about their abilities. So I would suspect that what we have here is a case of overconfidence rather than genuine ability. And I wouldn't even try to assess whether someone has genuine ability uh, unless I've got about 10 years. Uh, of track record. Mm-hmm. So he's jumping the gun a bit after six months. Um, although you know it's it's great that he's interested. Um, we can't, we need some more data there to prove the case. Yes, yeah. I, I would stress that starting early is one of the best things you can possibly do, simply because of the power of compounding. You know, if you can get a five percent return a year for twenty five years you're going to end up a lot richer than if you invest only for 20 years. You know, so, so in that sense, he's got the big thing right. What worries me is that he, he might be overconfident. Um, Julian, do you see younger investors feeling like they can really shoot the lights out with, um, with their equity portfolios and be overconfident? Yes, I, I suppose we do. And, you know, six months is a very, very short period of time. And actually, since the sell-off in October, we've had uh, strong equity markets. So it's been, a, it's been a very positive period to be investing in, which doesn't really test out um, his ability to deal with the bear market. Aha. Uh-huh. So you, you don't know what's around the corner, really. Um, I mean, how, how, how would you go about um, advising this young person in terms of... his overall portfolio because he's only got seven stocks so far where does he need to go from here yes i mean obviously stock selection and investment selection is important but actually probably the most important thing is diversification and at this point obviously he's very condensed in you know very concentrated in just a few stocks and particularly he's focused on oils the oil sector and the basic materials so it would be from our point of view if you were starting afresh we would look to have full diversification from the beginning um, because it is very difficult to predict what is around the corner. And if you're just backing the oil sector and the basic mineral sector, um, you know, as we've seen with a very weak um, oil price um, and also f- falling commodity prices, you know, that 
that bears a lot of pain. So what other sectors should a beginner investor be looking at? Well, we look at uh, 10 sectors. So in this portfolio that he's got, he's got about five of those, but heavily skewed to commodities and to oil. Um, I mean, if you look at sectors such as consumer goods, consumer services, telecoms, um, technology, I mean, these are all very important sectors. And and at the moment, he's got no exposure to those at all. The other point to note is on diversification, it's not just about sectors. It's also about geography and asset allocation. So at the moment, it is all equity and it's all mainly UK equity. So there's no exposure to the US, to Europe, to Asia, to other parts of the world. And how would you best go about getting exposure to overseas equities and other assets? I mean, my advice to him would be to look at collective investment schemes, so ETFs, uh, unit trusts, um, investment trusts. I mean, these are the best vehicles to get diversification and get exposure. So if we were looking to have exposure to Europe, we would um, select one of a number of European funds where we, we know the manager, we know what's how they're investing, which sectors uh, they're exposed to and their style. Chris, I know you you, um, you also probably would advise funds, but you may not look at the active funds. What would you think? Yeah, I'm, the, the easiest way to diversify is simply to get yourself a, a tracker fund. Now, for a younger person, these have an especial advantage in that they have low fees. And the thing about the power of compounding is that it can work against you. An additional fee of 1% per year on an active fund compounds quite horribly over 20 or 30 years. So you have to be very, very confident about fund manager ability to um, want to incur incur that extra cost. And I, I would advise that the cheapest and easiest thing to do is to go for a low-cost tracker or e- e- ETF fund. Julian, I can see you shaking your head there. What, what do you, what's your view? I think uh, in in the post RDR world, um, you know, for when we invest for investors in collectives, we are looking at the institutional units. So actually, the cost of investing with with decent fund managers has really dropped. So, say for an average equity fund, you may be paying 075 percent, which is actually very reasonable. The problem it's still is still more than a tracker, though, isn't it? It, it is. But yes. the, the problem I have with a tracker is you you get everything. It's not a it's not at all selective. So there may be sectors in in a tracker that you don't you don't want exposure to, or you know, and, and maybe they'll have downturns for multiple years. So why why sort of be sitting on underperforming sectors? Um, obviously, with a fund manager, they can be far more selective. They're using analytical tools. They're using qualitative tools, um, and it's a more selective approach. Chris, um, we did talk a bit about in the portfolio review about. Um, beating the professionals because this young chap obviously thinks thinks he can and he has ability um and i think he has a few comments about how you could how that might be stacked against him can you explain that yeah i just think about the advantages that the professional fund manager has you know he has lower dealing costs he's got a massive team of analysts behind him he's got access to brokers research to company management now all of that gives the, the professional, a massive advantage over the ordinary retail stock picker. And you're probably not going to beat the, the, the professionals um, if you try to know more about large companies. So what you've got to try and do, if you want to try and beat the market, is to think about what fund managers' weak points are. 
and 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 to and to focus upon those. And so does that lead you to smaller companies really do you think? Well not necessarily it is the case that um some smaller stocks are under-researched but in the largest universe of those under-researched companies are AIM we know that AIM tends to outperform uh, tends to underperform quite badly over the longer run. What I do instead is consider what the fund managers' weak points are. For example, a lot of active fund managers worry about benchmark risk, the risk of underperforming um, their, 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 their peers. And that can lead them to avoid defensive stocks, which means that defensive stocks can be underpriced. You know, the, the professional fund manager has to diversify because he can't concentrate in half a dozen stocks. And that means that he's often buying stocks not because he thinks they're good investments, but simply because he's got to, got to spread risk. Whereas the retail investor can focus on a few good ideas and obtain diversification uh, th- th- through, through funds. Uh, this which leads us back to him using funds. Now, Julian, are there some areas in which it's better to use an active manager and others in which you would go for trackers? Do you... What do you think there? Yes, I mean, there are certain geographical regions and certain industrial sectors that are better to use a specialist. And I suppose for me, looking at something like pharmaceuticals and healthcare, it's a very complicated area. Um, the, the companies are, are mainly in the US, but with some in Europe as well and elsewhere in the world. But it is it's complicated. It's a specialised industry. And for me, you know, a specialist in that area is far better to outperform and they can see where the value is, where the opportunities are. Okay, and you would you would advise mixing direct stocks alongside funds in a portfolio. That's that's a a reasonable way to go about constructing a portfolio. Yes, I mean for the clients I I look after, I would use a hybrid model where I'm looking at uh, collectives and equities side by side. So there are certain areas, maybe geographical areas, that I'd use a fund, or sector areas where I'd use a fund. But um, there are other areas where we would go for direct stocks. What do we think about the size of this young investor's holdings? He 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 had just shy of three thousand pounds in the portfolio. He'd already got seven holdings, so he'd got less than well, he got about four hundred quid in each. Um, is that the right way to go about building up a portfolio? These small amounts, Julian. I would say no. I would um, be looking at a collective from the outset, um, just because I think there's. The, there is too much uh, idiosyncratic risk with individual stocks um, when you've only got seven stocks um, and heavily concentrated on a couple of sectors. So for me, the starting point would be to you know, start with a collective and then maybe in the future, once you've built a core of collectives, to then look at direct stocks um, as, a, as a secondary phase. Chris, does that sound um, sensible to you? Do you think you should go yeah. for the tracker first? In your... Oh, yes, yes. yes. Uh, very definitely. Yeah, but you, obviously you would start with the tracker fund as the as the core holding. I I probably would yes because to 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 know what the best active funds are, you know, you need to do your own research. You need to gather your own expertise, just like just like with stock picking. Mm-hmm. Whereas the tracker fund is the the easiest option for a beginner. Um, Julian, do you have any final thoughts on um, advice for beginner investors? Is there anything that's crucial to think about? I think for me, the uh, apart from diversification, which we've covered, um, it's selection. And I suppose as a, as a house, we go into great detail to select from thousands of funds. Um, and that is 
analytical, it's qualitative, and it's also involves meeting the fund manager and having a, you know attending presentations where we can actually understand and ask questions, um, of, you know, of the fund managers that we're investing with. Um, so, I suppose advice is important. If you're going it alone, then probably a tracker is the best. But if you want something a bit more sophisticated with more selection process, then you know an advisory house is is a better choice. Yeah, but he obviously this guy wants to do it by himself. He he wants to do all the research himself, and he wants to start out, which is is fair enough. There's plenty of people doing that that themselves. Um, Chris, what what what's your your final thoughts on beginners and what they should be thinking about? What I'd advise is remember that most of the money that you're going to make or lose will be made in the future. And what you've got an advantage in as as a youngster is the fact that you can learn from other people's mistakes. So I I would advise him to uh, read a lot about behavioural finance, about cognitive biases. Um, And so in that way, he will at least know what mistakes um, we commonly make, and he'll be alert to, to avoiding them. Where can you read more about um, behavioural finance? Have you got any recommendations? Well, there's one very readable book by James Montier called The Little Book of Behavioural Investing. Hmm. Um, I'd also recommend books by Daniel Kahneman and Dan Ariely on cognitive biases generally because um, they'll, t- they'll teach you the mistakes you make in everyday life as well as in investing. Oh, they sound very interesting. Well, thanks very much. That's great. Now, we have been talking about diversification, but when you're thinking about this, you need to spread your portfolio between the major asset classes, and that's usually at least between equities and bonds. And one way to get exposure to bonds is via an actively managed bond fund, But there's been plenty of concerns over corporate bonds. Poor rates of return on government bonds have led many advisors to recommend strategic bond funds. And these are managed by professionals who've got the flexibility to move between different fixed income assets. However, they're not the only option for the income portion of your portfolio. And this week, Leonora has been looking at listed debt funds, which some, some advisors say can be used as alternatives to bond funds. Now, Leonora, what are, what are listed debt funds? Can you help yeah, us out? Yeah, listed basically investment trusts, um, which um, invest in a variety of debt instruments that perhaps you wouldn't ordinarily find in your um, regular corporate bond fund. And these can include asset-backed securities, loans and real estate debt. Um, now the advantage of these is they can offer more attractive yields and returns than corporate and certainly government bonds at the moment. And um, I suppose the advantage investment trusts have is they don't have to meet investor redemptions because they've got fixed capital. So even if there's a liquidity problem, you know, ability to buy and sell the underlying assets, um, they don't have to meet rede- investor redemptions and, and, and sell on assets. So they're quite well placed to buy things that uh, you know are not re- you know easy to sell. I think that the reason why um, you know people are kind of flagging them is um, in particular the attractive yields. If you look at the sector, quite a few of the investment trusts have a, a yield of four percent or more, um, and even better, quite a lot of them have floating rate assets. So if interest rates go up, um, you know the returns go up with them. So that provides a bit of protection and, you know, that might start, interest rates might rise later this year. So that's fairly useful. Um, there's always a but, though. These funds are actually really quite risky, probably 
you know, and feeling much riskier than a corporate bond fund and, you know, far and away riskier than, you know, say, UK government debt. Quite a lot of risks. I'm not going to go into them all. If you look at the magazine, we've got them set out. But um, just to summarise, I suppose, well, the main and obvious one is default, and that applies to any uh, debt fund. If uh, if the underlying security is default, you might um, get low returns. I think as well, because, they're, you know, they're investing in, in, in debt, if the value of the debt falls then, you know, it could affect trust returns, I guess a bit like equity. Now, the investment trust structure is great. They don't have to meet redemptions. But if the underlying assets are liquid and hard to buy and sell, the investment trust is likely to swing out to a wide discount to net asset value. And we've seen that in the past on investment trusts and illiquid securities like property. We've gone into double-digit discounts to NAV. So that is something you have to um, consider. Um, another issue with listed debt funds is that they're relatively new. Most of them launched in the last two years. There are a few old stalwarts in there, one of which include now IC Top 100 funds. That's Henderson Diversified Income. But most of them, um, yeah, you know, six months old, 12 months old. So you can't really assess the track record or the managers and, you know, have a look at how they done and that's quite important of a fund so, so yeah. why, why are they mm. being recommended then what, well i would say they're not being wholesale recommended i think people are looking at it as an alternative because mm-hmm. i mean there are such problems in the debt markets and with corporate bond funds and you know illiquidity so it's just an alternative area i mean they've got floating rate assets that could come up with interest rates um you know they, they do offer far more attractive yields um i mean basically higher risk higher return julian do you mm. have you looked at this sector at all listed debt funds what do you what's your view yes i mean this is an important area um i mean f- for the bond exposure that our clients have and we look at low duration at the moment just because of the interest rate risk we don't want to expose the client's capital to um, you know falls as rates rise and normalize do you uh, get that through actively managed bond funds or would you look to an exchange traded funds the yes, passive actually, way i mean i'm not against exchange traded funds and we do use them so um for ETFs that follow sort of short-dated bond indices, then that's, you know, we're looking at those. I suppose the non-standard bond funds as well, we're looking at funds that invest in mortgage securities, which is similar to what what has been discussed just then. Mm -hmm. Do you have any particular favourite funds to give exposure? I suppose, um, I mean, we invest with uh, 24 Asset Management who have the Monument Bond Fund, and that is uh, made up of uh, UK, European and Australian uh, mortgage-backed securities. So that's all very short-dated. I think the duration is sort of 0.25, so it means you're at the very sh- short end of the yield curve. So if interest rates do go up, you'll you'll benefit from the prevailing rate as it changes rather than being locked in. <clears throat> I suppose a lot of your classic bond funds have durations of eight, eight, you know, seven or eight years, which... You know, when rates do normalise, that is going to be very painful. Now, when you described that fund, um, you said mortgage-backed securities. For some some investors, they might think, oh, that sounds terribly um, um, worrying. It sounds a bit dangerous. Um, is it? You know? I suppose mortgage-backed securities got a bad name because of the you know subprime issues in the US. Actually, the, the way that mortgages work in the UK and Europe and Australia are totally different. And there's a lot more um, scrutiny over before the lending happens um, so the borrower is scrutinized in terms of income and their ability to repay the debt uh, so actually it is it's less um, I mean, it does raise eyebrows but it's it's not as bad as it sounds and uh, actually there's very low volatility in these types of funds um, because it is all very short dated um, with very good covenants and protection for investors 
Okay, thanks, Julian. Now, one of the other biggest investment stories this month has been um, the initial public offering um, of Neil Woodford's latest venture, and it's called the Woodford Patient Capital Trust. And this actually started trading this week, started trading on Tuesday. Leonora, you were looking at, at its um, performance so far. What's What's been happening? Um, yeah, well, it's done incredibly well. Last week, we reported it, it increased its maximum issuance size to 800 million, and it took in 800 million, um, which even beats Anthony Bolton's fundraising in 2010 and makes it the um, largest ever UK domiciled investment company raising. It was actually oversubscribed as well. They could have had more if they wanted. It's oversubscribed by nearly 10%. And it's still popular. It's trading at a premium to NAV. Um, it initially went up over 2%. And when I looked yesterday, it was on a 3.5% premium to uh, net asset value. Um, now, I think it's, it was quite a lot of money. And one reader actually asked a really good question. He said, if it raised all that money, will the trust have to have extra investments of less quality? Or, um, you know, will, will, will the underlying companies perhaps make Neil Woodford pay more for them? And I think the answer to that is a firm no. Woodford Asset Management were fairly geared up for this. They said that when they decided to increase the issue, they considered very carefully how much they could have and still meet the original investment strategy and deploy capital in a one to two year period and decided they could do it for 800 million. And um, I think that's bearing out. Neil Woodford said on Monday, I think it was, that he's got 30 investment ideas ready to go and he's going to execute on them quite fast. And one has already been revealed. They have subscribed to a share placing in AIM-listed Sphere Medical Holding. This is a company that provides monitoring and diagnostic devices for critical care. It's very much in keeping with the theme of the Investment Trust, which is going to be Mm medical-focused. So it's it's medical-focused and it's early-stage companies. AIM, alternative investment market listed, yes. Um, Julian, you've been obviously been watching this this launch of the Woodford Patient Capital Trust. What's what's your view of it? I, th- I think this area of investing um, is obviously short of uh, supply of capital. I mean, intellectual property in the UK is there's plenty of it, but in terms of commercialising that intellectual property and bringing it to market, um, has been quite challenging. I think in the UK because of the lack of long-term capital uh, commitment. I think the U- figures showing the US are far better at doing this than we are. Um, so this is, uh, you know, is a great opportunity for investors, and it, I think it it offers genuine long-term capital growth. And by by that I mean sort of a ten, more than a ten-year horizon. And as Neil said at the presentation I attended, you know, he's looking at indefinite investments, uh, not just ten or twenty years, but indefinite. So if it's a good idea, you know, he will increase the commitment over time and look to stay with that investment. Do you think investors who haven't got in already have missed the boat? With a, with a premium, I think it's three and a half percent. No, I mean we, we obviously supported it for our clients, and mm. and we got a good allocation of, of the new stock. But I don't think uh, investors have missed it at all. I mean the the remit for the fund or for the trust is to generate at least ten percent of capital return per year, um, and I think the performance fee kicks in beyond that uh, for Woodford. Uh, so if you think about that and you think about compounding, I know uh, Chris talked about compounding earlier. Um, if you if you compound 10% um, over an, several decades, I mean, it's, it's a massive return. So I, I don't believe investors have missed the opportunity. I think this is just the, the very, very, very early stages. Okay, so that's that's definitely one to watch then. 
Well, you can read more about tips for beginner investors, listed debt funds and the Woodford launch in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Um, thank you to my special guest, um, Julian Chester of Killick Co and to Leonora Walters and Chris Dillo of the Investors Chronicle. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>